Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing elite clubs nationally, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linke. Today on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, we talk with the national champion head coaches for Division I men and women's soccer. Chris Grassi in just four short years at Marshall. The Thundering Herd in West Virginia won the national championship for men's soccer. And over on the women's side, Jerry Smith, 35 plus years, 500 plus wins for the Santa Clara Broncos. He wins his second title and first in 20 years. Jason Cutney, ECNL Boys Commissioner, sits down with Chris Grassi, the top man at Marshall. Christian Lavers, the president and CEO of ECNL, joins me, Dean Linky, to sit down with Jerry Smith. And it all starts after this message from the ECNL. As the game continues to evolve in the United States, the ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer. The Elite Clubs National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country. With a robust competition platform for teams, educational resources for coaches and clubs, and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Once again, here's Dean. Marshall men's soccer head coach Chris Grassi has signed a new five-year deal that keeps him signed through the 2025 season. The school announced last Friday following the Thundering Herd's 2020 NCAA title, won of course this spring at Wakemead Soccer Park in Cary. Grassy, who just finished his fourth season at the helm of the program, has built the herd into not just a Conference USA contender, but obviously a national power. He has led Marshall to -to back-to-back Conference USA titles and, of course, the national championship. And guess what? Jason Cutney, the ECNL Boys Commissioner, has booked Chris Grassy, and I turn it over to Jason now for his conversation with the Marshall top man. Thanks, Dean. It's my pleasure to be here today with the national championship coach, Chris Grassi from Marshall, a coach that has really made a name for himself in West Virginia soccer, first and foremost, because of his history, but also now nationally. He's he's certainly put a stamp on everything that he's done in the national ranks, making really University of Charleston, West Virginia into a national powerhouse at the Division II level. And now Marshall, the thundering herd, taking them to a a spot really that they've never been to before, uncharted territories, but really moving this thing in the right direction. So Chris, thank you very much for joining us. It's it's my pleasure to be on here with you today. Hey Jason, thanks for a lot. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's look at this here, 2019, 16 wins, highest uh, national ranking ever in school history for Marshall. Conference USA regular season and tournament champion. Clinched the berth to the first ever NCAA tournament for Marshall. Beat West Virginia to move into the Sweet 16 that year. So it begs the question, what in the world is going on in West Virginia that keeps a boy from Newcastle happy and staying in that state? First and foremost, as long as my family's happy, that's kind of the main thing. And then for me, I love football. 
just love being around it. I love talking about it. I love doing it every day. They've got an amazing job. And, you know, I needed to, to take a place like Charleston that was going to, you know, allow me to, to be a head coach and to do things my way and, and kind of experiment with, with all these things that I've been talking about and thinking about for, for years. And then, you know, when I left Charleston, it was for a, a bigger challenge to grow. I just felt like I wasn't really growing at the end. So I needed something else that was similar that could support my aspirations and the bigger budget of jobs that w- weren't available to me, I think, at the time. And, but Marshall was a great fit. It happened to be 45 minutes down the road. I've got a great connection with the place. I came here as a grad assistant at the end of my playing career. And it was like a really, really great place for me then. And so I had fond memories. And so they offered me the, you know, the logistics first and foremost, I thought they would give me enough to win. Entirely football reasons. I mean, I come to work, I work with great people, coach football every day. It's amazing. So that's what keeps me here. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned you were at Marshall previously as a grad assistant back in, I think it was 2004 to 2006. How did that come about? I mean, talk to us about a little bit about that. I, I think you did your master's there in exercise science, but what led to you going to Marshall initially? I played at Alderson Broaders College, a division two school. You know, and I had a great coach there in, in Dan Kelly, Ned, as we call him. He really sort of was, was great for me as a, as a sort of another father figure, somebody who kind of, you know, helped me through that sort of difficult transition, I guess, from youth to adulthood. His coach happened to be the Marshall coach, Bob Gray. And so I think at the time I was just all set on playing and I was actually at Brentford or the League One at the time, on trial, and things were going well. And then that was in 2004, when all the big television contract for the lower leagues, that, that fell through. And so all these teams had planned on having all this money, so the, the money wasn't there. And so they were like, well, we can't sign you now, but we'd like to take a look at you, you know, in January, can you come back? Or can you, you know, come back, you know, next year? And we'll, we'll, we'll kind of find, we'll, we'll, have, we'll be in a better place financially. So I was like, okay, well, I've got to find something to do. There was a great connection with the coach of Marshall and Bob Gray, with with. Uh, Alderson brought us where I went to school and he went to school there and he was the coach there and he was my coach's coach and you know he kind of set me up with with coming down for a grad assistant and just kind of scrambling looking for something and making sure we making sure I could get something just to do and I always wanted to be a coach and I like the idea of continuing education and continuing to do a master doing a master's degree in, in exercise science and it just kind of fit I thought honestly I'd be here for one semester and I'll get back into it but I loved coaching I loved everything about it I thought okay this is this is me I'm hanging up the boots and trying to get a jump early on, on coaching and trying to be the best coach that I can be and, and be in football for the rest of my life hopefully well it's interesting I know Bob was a big influence in you and, and obviously a great coach he he actually mentioned I read a, an article on him years ago where he said you even though you were a grad assistant you might as well have been the head coach at that point because the, the the way you carried yourself and just your the way you passed on the knowledge to the players. I mean, I, I think a lot of the guys that listen to our podcast are coaches currently in the ECNL and around the country. A lot of guys that formerly played men and women, and they struggle with initially that transition from player to coach. What do you think was it uh, about his style when you were there under his tenure or just in, ingrained in the way you approach the game that helped you make that transition? Because I, I went through it. Others have gone through it as well. Sometimes it's the frustration of why can't these players do these things that I was able to do or my teammates were able to do and, and you have to break through that. Was it relating to the player? Was it delivering the game to them, delivering your style? What, what do you think was, uh, was the challenge and what helped you through it? And looking back on when I started coaching, to what I know now, I just, I really felt like I knew nothing. And looking back on it, I didn't know anything, but I, I had an idea about the way that I wanted the game to play. It's it's evolved a lot since then, and it's it's completely different since then, but I was full of passion. I was full of fight. I wanted the guys to be, to be brave. I wanted them to play. I didn't feel like, I kind of felt, why can't we be these, SMU were really good at the time. Akron were in our conference. 
they weren't at the level that Caleb got them to at the time. But there's some really good teams. I'm like, why can't we? We should beat these teams. Why, why can we not compete with these teams? You know, that was kind of my mentality was never, you know, I thought the players were great. I, I really enjoyed, you know, working with them. We had a lot of pace in the side back then. Bobby kind of ran it. Bobby was like the, the you know, the father figure and he would kind of step in and, and say his piece. And I was kind of like the fun uncle a little bit where it was, you know, I could hang out with the guys a little bit more being, you know, I was only two or three years older than them. And I think it was like 26, 27 at the time. So it wasn't a big age difference. So I could kind of talk to them about, they would talk to me about, you know, their girlfriends and them having this problem or, you know, so we could eat. I could really get a sense of and let Bobby know exactly where the team was at because they would tell me. That's something I don't I don't get that anymore as a head coach. You don't you don't get those conversations about what they're really griping about or what they're really feeling, you know, because they want to say, Coach, I'm fine, I'm I'm not hurt, I'm I'm I can I can play, I'm good. Like they worry that I'll judge them on, you know, for selection. So they'll, they'll you know go to my staff for that or our athletic trainer, Kerry Francis, they'll they'll talk to her. She's like the, the mom of the team a little bit. They can talk to her about those things. So I'll I'll kind of find out through the uh, you know, through the grapevine a little bit. But Bobby just kind of let me have a bit of steam to, to kind of go and, and run training sessions. And then we talk about tactics. We change the tactics. We talk about players. We talk about roles. And he, he just let me be totally involved with it, you know, from day one. And it, it was brilliant to, to be able to do that. And I didn't have many responsibilities other than just coaching and, and doing that sort of thing and going to school. And so it was kind of a brilliant time for me to, to really just, I wasn't involved with the administration of, of the program or anything like that. It was just just coaching and, and hanging out with the players socially and kind of like getting to know them and it was just an amazing environment to, to begin with a good starting point as well for you and in, in your career and obviously he was impactful as a as a mentor for you i i'll fast forward a little bit here going to when you got to the university of charleston west virginia for myself i've been in pittsburgh now for over a decade and i was involved in the river hounds for a long time on the on the pro side and the youth side and university of charleston west virginia for those that are listening and don't know it's you know it's it's not it's not a big name school, right? You're, you're kind of in the middle of West Virginia from a soccer standpoint, probably not the easiest place to recruit a lot of players unless you go overseas and they just don't know that they're going to Charleston, West Virginia initially. And it's a beautiful area, but it's, it's not a tourist trap location in the U S let's put it that way. So I think the interesting thing for me when you got there and from the point you were, you were there to the point you left there, that program certainly came a long way. There were some good coaches there when you first got there, but looking at your record when you're there, I mean, it begs the question. And when you, when you go to a school like that, when you go to Charleston, West Virginia, division two, how do you build an empire there? I mean, it's interesting because I knew Dave Brandt for a long time and Dave built a Messiah college and I got to know Dave. I spent a lot of time with him. He's one of the, probably for me, one of the most impactful leaders that I was around in the game, just in how he developed the style, got that style to just eke through everything that he did with the players around him. And I could see at the college ranks why he was just one of the best college coaches of all time. And Messiah is, is you know, it's, it's similar to, I think, Charleston, West Virginia in some ways. You're in your own little niche world where you can build something great if you really roll up the sleeves. But how do you do it there? I mean, how do you go into the University of Charleston, West Virginia and create what was arguably the best Division II program in the country for a long time? I think it still is, right? I mean, it's yeah. still the best. Yeah. the best team uh, in Division Two, and, and that's that gives me immense pride to see Strats. You know, was a, an assistant yep. secondarily. He was, a, he was a great friend. You know, first and foremost, and and then to see Smee, who's also a great friend, and was a volunteer for us for a brief time, and, and then worked as an assistant for Strats to take them to see them take it and continue it. It gives me nothing but pleasure, and you know, talked about making sure that Marshall is also built to last and we continue to be dominant. But at Charleston, I think anybody who talks about tactics and talks about style of play and all that sort of stuff is only able to do that if they've been successful because of the logistics 
because of having the right framework, the right budget, the right ability to recruit. When I took over at Charleston, our budget was, let's say, about $60,000, $65,000 total, including salaries, including travel, including equipment, including everything, referees' fees, everything. And I think when I left there, it was you know, closer to four hundred grand. But what we were able to do was bring in over a million dollars for the university in student revenue. So we built a reserve program there, a JV program. And so we were able to ask for a full-time assistant, you know, Dan Stratford. We were able to ask for grad assistance. We were able to support ourselves by, you know, that's a small private school and it's it works on having, you know, students there. Part of my, you know, philosophy with with beginning the reserve team was okay, the reserve team can support the first team. And we can also have some competition for places for the first team. We can also generate revenue for the school. But in turn, we're going to give them a great soccer experience. We're going to give them a great soccer education. We're going to let them be a student athlete with no differentiation between how they were tried and how the first team were tried. And then they're going to add to the Charleston community. You know, they're going to come from all over the world. They're going to bring their own cultures and flavors to, to, the, uh, to the school and to the campus. And it's going to make University of Charleston a better place to be. And, you know, I had a great idea at the time, Brent Stevens, who, you know, was super supportive of the idea. And she got it. You know, she got it right away of, of this is what we can do and we can be number one and, and they still are. And, and she's still there doing a terrific job and still good friends with her to this day. And it's just, you know, they built, since then, they built a, a brand new soccer field. I mean, I remember doing Google SketchUp drones of like, this is what our facility should look like and trying to present them to everybody. And, and you sound so dream because we were training at the local uh, city fields and, and playing at the city fields. So it was a 30 minute, you know, van ride there and back for training. So it's grown and, and they've, they've continued to invest and they've continued to make sure they're going to be going to be the best. It just takes willingness. Logistical pieces have to be there. Otherwise, it's just impossible to, to then get to tactics, to then get to recruitment. You know, if you've got nothing to recruit with and you've got nothing to bring them to, then there's no point. There's nothing you can do. I read a really cool article on you as it kind of getting ready for this podcast. I went by, it was March of 2020. So, or a year or so and change removed from it. But you got a quote and it said, we still have an opportunity to be a great team, to be a national championship team, to be one of those consistent college cup teams. Right? So that was a year and change ago. I thought back then on when you were at University of Charleston, I think it was, and correct me if I'm wrong here, two years you were runner up, one year you were a national semifinalist, I think for, for the national championship. So it was kind of the elusive national championship when you're in division two. I'm assuming you went to division one because it's easier to win a national championship, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. But So what, you know, when you go from March, 2020, obviously a, a big, a big statement to make, right? And, you know, every coach has been in interviews where they're, they're looking to the year ahead and saying, look, we just did well. We have a lot more to prove, a lot more to prove. That's kind of a very cliche thing to say. What was it though? I mean, what seriously dig into it? What, how did you get from making a statement like that to taking a team through COVID to winning a national championship with a program that most others would never have thought could do it? I mean, it started with, with, with Charleston, right? So that was the, I found a magical formula there or a secret formula, whatever it is, or a, not a secret, but a, I found a, a formula and a philosophy that I'd grown and worked on and, and, and it worked. I mean, it worked the way we played, the way we played football. I mean, I've since evolved that three or four folds since then in terms of doubling down on things, getting rid of certain things. But recruiting wise, you know, we, we, at Charleston, we had a very diverse culture. We, we ended up having to be that way. We had a lot of South Americans, Brazilians, you know, Europeans, Africans, you know, Englishmen, Canadians, Americans. Like we had a kind of a great mix of, of everybody. And I just started to see how much strength there was in, in diversity in having different opinions and different ways to play the game. You know, for example, if you've got, like say, two left wingers and one of them is, 
the traditional English direct, he's quick, he gets in behind, he whips crosses in the box. Okay, and, and then the other guy is of a Brazilian futsal expert who's going to cut inside and drop into the 10 hole and, and, and kind of get on the ball there. It gives you all sorts of options on the pitch. And then also if you look at life that way, if you look at you know how people look at their family, how they act around adults, how they act around sort of people in the community, how they solve problems, how they are willing to help each other and how how they just go about their daily life. There's different different ways to do things well. And so I was able to see how lovely some of the Brazilians are with their families and, and, and how welcoming they were with my kids and my family and, and like how affectionate they are and, and, and just different things that we just, it's not the norm for like the Western world to, to be that sort of openly affectionate and sort of, you know, nice. And you kind of just see like a different way to live life. And, and, and I grew as a person. Having that culture, having that sort of philosophy and, and, and having so much diversity and playing a brand of, of soccer after, you know, those near misses, the three that you've just mentioned there, it was very tough to, I realized after the second year, me and, me and Strats had a good conversation about, we just got on and beat the two toughest teams in the region previously and the best team, the other best team in our league comfortably. And then it was kind of like, okay, well, is this it? You know, we, we got the boys pumped up, motivational videos. We, we, we kind of tactically done the game. We worked and worked and worked and it was easy. And I kind of felt that as that happened, the, the second year, I wasn't growing anymore as a coach. I wasn't challenged as a coach and so I knew I was giving up a national championship you know to leave because Charleston they're going to win many more you know that's totally set up to to just dominate and so it, was, it wasn't was a case of if we would win it was when we would win one but personally and, and as a coach I just stopped growing I stopped being challenged in terms of having to come up with new ideas having to find new solutions and I came to Marshall because it I think it offered a good logistical base to, to from which to start to, to at least have a good shot at winning a national championship and I'd, I'd always kind of said we're going to win a national championship if we get things right if we can do this obviously we, we talked a little bit about sort of tactical evolutions from Charleston coming in but when I got here I had to make a, a really difficult decision do I play to the player's strengths that are here right now and do we try and win more games and will that help us get more recruits and then play the way I want to play or do we start from day one playing the way I want to play so I can enjoy it and knowing that we're going to take we're going to take losses we're going to you know we're going to get horrible defeats that you know we don't feel we could and I said you know what I'm just going to embed the philosophy we're going to play this way if we lose we lose you know if if, if we if we do it but eventually we'll attract enough people who play the way that we who want to play the way that we play and we'll be able to we'll be able to win it because I didn't think we could win it just playing to the strengths just playing you know by the numbers no risky soccer you know playing it in the channels and and shutting up shop and I, and I I didn't want to do that I didn't think it was wrong but I just didn't want to do that I wanted to instill my philosophy in the way the game should be played and I'm a huge fan of Pep Guardiola and, and, and keeping the ball and just having one ball and having guys be brave on the ball and have them enjoy playing you know and just get at players and attack players 1v1 and have a bit of freedom in the attacking third and you know have a really solid base and I, I want to dominate the possession game you know I want to, I want to dominate the, the passes per defensive action you know statistics I want to make sure that we are playing the game in a way that I would want to watch it if I was a fan. We made those decisions and those first two years were the hardest of my my career. They were tough. We took our lickings, you know, had losing records both seasons. You know, we only we got knocked out in the semi-final of the conference tournament both years. But I could see growth. I could I really could see growth and I just had to kind of keep that focus. And I thought it might take us one more year to get to the top of the conference. But in 2019, it just clicked. We had the players, we had the culture was right. They were buying into it. They were lovely guys. And I'm just like, you know what? This is going to be great. You know, this is going to be great. And we had some unfortunate circumstances at the end with, you know, Pedro getting suspended, myself getting suspended. And I think we could have gone a lot further had we not had those. Jan Eric broke his ankle. You know, we had some injuries in the squad. And it's just one of those things that didn't 
you know, didn't, things didn't go away. And then this year they all went our way and, you know, we managed to stay healthy and stay fit. But that's because I've got an unbelievable staff who look after their health and fitness and, and we end up winning it. But it was only that those first two years was making the decision to come here and, and know it was going to be tough because I wanted to grow. I wanted to be a better coach. I wanted to be more challenged with the best coaches in college and in the country and, and then just, just sticking to our guns and, and, and playing the way we want to play and, and working on what it looked like more than the result and what it felt like off the pitch and around the pitch. That was our two main focuses. Jason Cutney, the ECNL Boys Commissioner, spending time with Chris Grassy, the top man at Marshall who just won the Division I Men's Soccer National Championship. We'll take a break and be back with more Jason Cutney and Chris Grassy on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast where ECNL Boys Commissioner Jason Cutney continues his conversation with Chris Grassy, the head coach of the Marshall Thundering Herd men's soccer team, your new national champions. Well, I got to know you kind of indirectly years ago through some of the players from University of Charleston that had made their way to the pro level. I think the first one was probably Robbie Vincent. Was Connor Branson with you as well? Yeah, Connor Branson. Connor yeah. and, then, and, uh, and then Thomas Van Kiazeel. So, you know, with, with Robbie, it was interesting because back in the, uh, I guess it was 2009, 10-ish, whatever it was, but you had those trials, we call it, I kind of use my air quotes here for everyone listening, and trials at the USL level because we were pretty much like four people running an entire USL franchise and we were also the coaching staff and we were also the players and we were also the blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so we, we heard about this kid from University of Charleston, West Virginia, had zero expectation about what we were about to see from this player, came out to trial with us. And this trial, again, was it was a mixture of uh, it was basically like an open session of players, coaches, academy kids, guys that we could find from the indoor facility, uh, all training <laughs> at the, on the same time in the same field. And so we get playing. Robbie basically is silent as a mouse, doesn't talk to anybody, extremely quiet kid. Game gets underway, and within about three minutes, he gets the ball. And there's a small field, so just inside the midway line was basically, you know, 30, 35 yards out. Puts his foot through a ball in a way that I've never seen it before, and just top shelf goal. I mean, everyone just kind of stopped and looked at this kid to say, what in the world was that? You know, cause it just kind of came out of nowhere. He, he had zero celebration. He almost looked like he was embarrassed to score the goal, just kind of turned around and ran back to midway line and got ready for the, for the restart. I just remember that moment because, you know, two years after that, I was having a conversation with Robbie in my office at the time. And I told him, I said, Robbie, I think you could be the best player in this league. I was like, I, I have no doubt about it. I mean, you're better than any player that I've played with before. I think you have the ability to do it. And he just didn't really say much. You know, he just, he, he <laughs> took that on and said, you know, I, that's my goal. And he, he worked the entire off season with our strength and speed coach in Pittsburgh. And he came back the next year and he did. He was the best player in the USL. He ended up earning a contract to DC United and, and went on and did very well. But I think the thing that stood out to me the most was just how humble Robbie was. And when I got to know Tommy, you know, Thomas Van Kiazeel is kind of cut from that same cloth. You know, he's from a different part of the world, but 
when he came into Pittsburgh, I honestly, and I said it, I think in a social media tweet a couple of years ago, I thought Tommy was one of the best players to ever play for Pittsburgh Riverhounds, just because he's an all around soccer player and, and a great soccer mind, but he was extremely humble and extremely good. I mean, Robbie and Tommy were always working with the Academy players in Pittsburgh, always private sessions, Academy sessions, doing whatever they could signing every autograph after every game. And I just, I have to think that when you go and you recruit, because you, you've recruited some other boys from that club in Pittsburgh now who are on the team. You have three boys there from Pittsburgh that are fortunate enough to be on the Marshall team right now. But when you spoke to me a couple of years back, recruiting those players, the only questions you asked about them were about their character. And so I, I, I got to ask them, I mean, you have a lot of internationals on your team. You have, you know, the Americans and internationals mixed together. That is the, that's the beautiful game, right? That's the world's game. When you recruit, what do you look for? Is it character that, that is at the top of that list? Because I have to think looking at the kids and, the, and what you've produced that it has to be. Yeah, I mean, character is, you know, it's definitely one of the three things, sort of the triangle things that we would look for. The problem with trying to judge that, yes, I mean, I want to say like we get it all right, but we, I get it wrong. You know, I definitely do get it wrong. Robbie was a player when I got to Charleston. I think he was recruited by he was recruited by Chad. He went somewhere else and didn't like it. It was too isolated, too busy, or too whatever. And so he ended up coming to Charleston. I think the story was that, you know, it was just one of those one of those things. And so I inherited Robbie, and, and you know, so thankful that I did because what a what a humble humble guy he is. I mean, but what a lion on the pitch. You know, he's the quietest guy off the pitch, on the pitch, screaming, yelling, fighting. You know, for the cause, and then off the pitch again, he's just back to being you know a, a genuinely good person and genuinely quiet and. And humble guy and look there's no secret you mentioned Thomas you mentioned Connor you mentioned Robbie all guys who can play in multiple positions all guys who are super humble all guys who have a defensive work ethic all guys who are really good with both feet you know who work on that work on their craft all guys who can play in 1v1 situations you know that was that's the other thing I look for every position from my goalkeeper to my center forward you know they gotta be able to play 1v1 you gotta be able to have that ball because if you want to play possession style you gotta be able to get out of trouble it's kind of the the thing that makes it so much easier to do but you know, character is character is a great thing. And if you don't have a good character, you're not gonna you're not gonna be here very long. You know, it's college and 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 you know, there's there's different restrictions. But it's like you're just not gonna play. You're not gonna fit in. You're not gonna be the right, you know, the right type. And look, there's there's guys who come here who don't have the best character, who don't have the best the most humility or whatever it is. But you know, if they come here as young men, we can work on that. You know, we can we can help them grow into that. You know, but the guys who are really gonna make it. We've got guys on our team right now, and, and I could probably name a bunch. Vito Diaz is one, and I think he's going to have a huge career. But he could play left back in the in the MLS. You know, he could he could play. He's an attacking midfielder for us. He's played striker for us this season. He could he'd play left back. He'd happily do the job for you, left back, sweeper, whatever you need him. You ask him to go on goal, he'd go on goal for you. You know, works really hard, super humble, two good feet. Like it's just it's easy to see. You see guys like Robbie special right away. You see, it. you saw it. I saw it, you know, from day one at Charleston. One of my favorite memories of Robbie, I've got to tell you this. I think it was a game we lost, actually, up at Lockhaven. And he had a bloody nose and he doesn't like blood. And so he was off the field and we're trying to get him ready. And he came back on the field and he was taking a free kick from about 35, 36 yards out. Right foot, he's right-footed. So, And looking across in the box and he kind of looks at the keeper and he runs around the ball and smashes it so hard with his weak foot. It goes over the ball, it, hit, it goes over the wall, hits the crossbar, bounces down, should have went in. Came out and it was just like rattling the crossbar. I'm like, that kid is unbelievable. Like a 35-yard wrong foot free kick is just absolutely crushed. It's just one of my absolute favorite memories of him coming in. But he was just, yeah, okay, no problem. Like he just he'd be out working on his craft. He'd work extra hard. He'd do extra sessions, like you said. He was all about doing whatever it takes to be the best he could be. And he was great in the classroom. What a leader in the classroom he was, and and good student. 
all like Thomas was a good student, you know, all of these guys are Connor was a elite 90 winner, you know, he, the, the top all he won it twice actually back to back. Just unbelievable characters, humble, hardworking. It's not it's not a secret. If you're Neymar, if you're Zlatan, you can have an attitude and an ego. If you're not humble, growth mindset, work hard. Like it's not there's no secret. That's the truth. Robbie, for me, I, and I've gotten to know Robbie really well over the years. He, you know, he's, he's one of my closest friends and, you know, he just, as a player though, as I think it was 20, I think what year it was now, but 17 or 18, where he just, I think he scored like 26 goals in the USL. And I, I believe it was about 22 of them were from outside the 18 and, you know, just the ability to, to have the bravery. You talked about bravery earlier, the bravery to hit that ball it just turned into his thing, you know? And so it, it, it really kind of was uncanny to see the number of goals that he put in from that distance. But I think the bravery and, and the humility were probably what stood out the most about him. And now he's coaching in the youth game and he's delivering that to the next generation. So it's, it's passing it forward, I suppose. A couple more things here before we, uh, we run out of our time, but I think it's always been interesting to kind of ask this question, taking it outside the soccer side of things. I mean, you're a, you're a leader of men when you're coaching in the men's game and, from a leadership standpoint, do you have any any mentors, any books, anything that you think have uh, have has helped shape you as a leader more so than a soccer coach? In terms of mentors, I mean, I'm still close with my old coach, you know, Dan Kelly, who you know was just a genuine human being. I think he he was first and foremost a really really great man. He was there for me when I needed him, and so that was kind of something I I felt like I had to take and and, and you know hope I could emulate with with our guys in terms of books. I mean. Obviously, I've read all the Pep Confidential ones. I kind of really like that. This guy called Damien Hughes does the High Performance Podcast. He, he wrote The Barcelona Way, which is an amazing book about basically breaking down the culture of Barcelona, and this is what they do. Obviously, all those those cultural books, The you know, Culture Code, you know, The Goldmine Effect, Bounce, all, all of those sort of things are really, really good. But I would say the one I connected with most, and I think the one that helped me turn, turn my mindset a little bit in 2013 it wasn't our greatest year we didn't win the league it was the only year at Chelsea we didn't win the conference uh, we ended up winning the conference tournament against uh, Notre Dame College who was coached by you know Mark McBride at the time he was a really good coach and so they won the regular season and we won that we ended up winning the conference tournament but up and down from that conference tournament I listened to Phil Jackson's 11 rings and I think I really sort of connected with that I thought it was a really it was a good book. We look at things very, very similar. You know, I've read the Mourinho books, the Austin Bengas, Ferguson, you know, Pep Guardiola. And I think, though I want to emulate, you know, Pep's style as much as I can, and, and I love the way he sort of evolved the game and uh, the way it's played with, with uh, when that Barcelona team was incredible. And, you know, his, his Bayern Munich, Man City teams have been amazing to watch. But I thought, like, culturally and, and, and sort of in a, in a player leadership role, I thought Phil Jackson was was the most similar to the way I thought about a lot of things, and and I kind of really like that. I like to sort of take on tribal leadership and, and the levels that you know they, they come and how he would relate that to to his players. And you know we've talked a lot this year about being a level five team and how it feels and and just to be an extra special. And I think Phil Jackson would be one that I would recommend to to anybody. That's very interesting you say. I mean I, I through the 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 series that ESPN ran on Jordan, I learned a lot about Phil. I mean, I was, I was a huge basketball fan. I was a Knicks fan, which at that time, the Knicks were very good and were finally back to being a, a respectable basketball team again after a long, long time away. But Phil Jackson, I think he was, he was just so different in the way he managed people. And, you know, when you're managing guys like Rodman and the cast of characters around Jordan, 
you have to manage a lot of different personalities. Actually, it triggered something in my brain here that Robbie Vincent told me about you that he said positive visualization was something that you brought to him while in college that he had never, you know, he, he even laughed. He said at first he thought you were just a maniac for bringing it to the, uh, to the equation, but he was like, well, this coach said, we're going to do this. So we're going to lay on the field and close our eyes and, you know, talk about scenarios and, and visualize uh, what is it about uh, kind of going outside the box with things like that? I mean, do you, do you still bring that to the table for your teams? Is that something that you found to be profoundly impactful? Yeah, yeah, there's probably pictures of us doing it before the tournament, you know, before the game at Wilson, you know, we lay on the field and we visualised, you know, that just picture the field and the conditions that they're going to be there, you know, picture a great first touch, picture having boundless energy, you know, picture running running faster than your opponent, picture, you know, knocking him off the ball like he's not even there, picture hammering the ball into the back of the net. You've almost got to see it in your mind's eye before it really happens. You've got to visualise what's going to happen. And then the battle's won, then the nerves are gone, you know, you've, you've already visualised what's going to happen in the game and, and you kind of play that game a little bit in your mind and you know talk about breathing exercises and, and mindfulness to, to kind of make sure you're in the moment but you're not you know you're in control of your body you know you go take a PK you know we used to do lucky enough to never ever lose a penalty shootout as a, as a coach and uh, we do breathing exercises like to get the heart rate down we do positivization we, we decide what we're going to do and, and they put themselves in a frame of mind to do it and they also control their heart rates and you know, so they're not too nervous. They're adrenaline. That you know, you, you kind of do some, you know, breathing in for four, holding it for four seconds, and letting it go, so you can get some, you know, some more that carbon dioxide in your blood, slow your heart rate down a little bit, stop the adrenaline pumping so hard through your veins, and you know, it's all just science, you know, really to just help us, you know, get there. I don't, I don't know if it's cookie or, or whatever it is, but for me, football is in the mind first and foremost. You know, you've got to be, you've got to have a strong mind. You've got to understand the tactics. You've got to know what you're going to do. So. Let's work on the mind as much as we work on the feet, you know? Well, it's, it's certainly working for you. I, I, last year, I think when we spoke at that time, we were working on some stuff with the ECNL. And I remember reaching out to you to see if you'd be interested in getting involved in, at that time, it was a pilot program for us, the Super Cup. I think Josh Fago was actually, your assistant was actually going to be planning to come out until then. unfortunately it was canceled because of COVID, like everything else in our world was canceled for a while there. But yeah. the ECNL for me, I mean, I, you know, I joined in April of 2019 and one of the most interesting things for me, I've, it's been a very tumultuous time in this country with youth soccer beyond everything else that's been tumultuous, but obviously the, the U.S. Development Academy had closed uh, its doors in early 2020 as well. And ECNL has really kind of gone through a major transformation at this point. You know, So my life changed a lot with taking the job. The league changed a lot over that time. So it's been a, an ever-evolving process here. But We've come out of it looking at this and seeing the one thing that I've been able to see is the players in this league now are kids that are, you know, certainly cut from a similar cloth and that they all aspire to be a higher level player, but they're all working for your attention, right? I mean, you know that Chris, the other coaches, Sasha and the other guys at the high level, you all know that they're working for your attention. When I go and I watch these games, I'm watching it from a commissioner's perspective now. I'm making sure that, you know, the discipline is in check, that the, the tents are up around the field, that we're doing everything that we need to do to make sure that it's a properly run game and we have the resources available for everyone. You're looking at these games when you go there for who is the one kid in this entire complex that could step on the field and impact a game at Marshall, right? And, and who can help me win a game? Because winning is at, at your level, it's in many cases, it's keeping a job, right? So you look at it from the standpoint of what is one kid that's absolutely different. So I'll put you on the spot. When you when you show up, and I'm, I, I know you've recruited ECNL 
players because you know those kids from my club as well in Pittsburgh, previous club. But I know you'll be at upcoming events as well when, when this NCAA dead period finally uh, dissipates here and people are allowed to go watch kids play soccer again without masks, which will be great. When you show up, let's just say ECNL postseason, right? ECNL playoffs are in uh, North Carolina here on the boys' side starting July 3rd. What does Marshall look for when you show up at that field complex? Knowing that you're going to have hundreds of kids competing, what's the one thing that's going to jump out to you first when you're, when you're sitting down? For me, recruiting, I mentioned two of the things um, before was, was, you know, the, the 1v1 ability. Every kid that I've got wrong, um, and I had a great conversation with the, the, the recruitment people at Wolves. And I said, look, I said, the college is really difficult because, you know, we're going to get 25% of the kids wrong. And he laughed at me. And he said, if you could do 25% at this level, they would pay you millions of dollars. At this level, if we get 50% of the kids or the players like right, you know, we're doing, we're, we're the best in the business, you know, 50%. And so what we try to do is, is make sure, and every kid I've failed on, hasn't been the greatest 1v1 player, like in their position, you know, they're not as comfortable on the ball. And so that's something that we really, really value, you know, that ability on the ball, you know, it's not just beating people and dribbling all the time. It's, it's making those right decisions, those first touches under pressure, you know, so we'll look for the technical ability of players, whether they, whether they can, you know, play left back, whether they play right wing, whether, you know, in goal, you know, we'll look for their technical ability first and see how they deal with pressure. The second thing we look at, like, are they brave? Are they brave on the ball? Do they want the ball? Is it, are they hiding? Are they, are they not working anymore for their team? Is it, are they walking around on the pitch? Like, are they still fighting for 90 minutes? Are they brave enough to, to, to kind of do that and put themselves out there to do that? You know, I trust the pyramid. I trust the clubs. You, you guys, when you were coaching, you see them more than I do. I'm going to see them once. I might see them on their best day. I might see them on their worst day. But you've got to have some trust in it. It's relationships to like, is this kid... Is he a good character like we talked about? Does he have the humility? Does he have the growth mindset? You know, does he have the intensity to, to, to kind of do this, you know, to make it at this level? Is he willing to sort of give it his all? Is he a soccer junkie? You know, something we've Fraser thrown around for 20 years, you know, in terms of, you know, the guys that just can't get enough of it. They want to learn. It's, it's a passion. It's not a chore. Like they want to be a trainer. And they, they, you know, if, if you have a day off, they show up in the field because they want to work on their free kicks or they want to do something, you know, are they junkies? But you don't know any of that from seeing an event. You know that from talking to the coaches and then you build up coaches that you can trust who give you good advice and who give you, you know, the good uh, information on the players and others who, you know, send you players and they promise the world and the players just not really that interested, you know? So I think those are the things we look for, but, you know, as a skill, as a technical skill, being brave on the ball, being skillful 1v1 and fighting and working hard for your team is, is that's what we're going to look for, like just on, the, on those events and then we'll circle the guys we like and then we'll talk to the coaches, you know? Another example of what's working for you, hopefully that continues down that path for Marshall and you guys continue to build a, the empire that you built at University of Charleston, West Virginia for years to come. I think from my side of things, this, this was a huge honor to, to get you on in short order, especially. I know you're, you're going on a quick little family vacation after this. I appreciate you taking the time to join us on this one. And I think all the listeners will be appreciative. I mean, it's not often that we get a national championship coach on here You've certainly put in the time to get there. You've, you, you rolled up the sleeves. You came over. You did all the dirty work. You've climbed the ladder. You deserve it all. I mean, I, I, you know, I wish you well as you go forth here. I, I hope that we'll see you on the sideline at ECNL events with your staff. I'm sure we will. But for me and from everyone at the ECNL and everyone listening, congratulations again. Awesome for Marshall. Certainly the best of luck as you go forward. And 
you know, for me, Dean, I think that answers everything that I wanted to ask Chris here. And I'm sure all of the listeners are, are very appreciative. But again, Chris, thank you very much and, and have a good vacation with your family. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. And I'm sure his vacation was even a little bit better after signing that five-year extension well-deserved at Marshall. Chris Grassy, I was able to call a couple of his games before the College Cup. He is legit and his team is legit. Speaking of legit, Jerry Smith has been doing it for well over 35 years. He won it in 2001 with Santa Clara. He did it again in 2021, just a couple weeks ago. Jerry Smith, the head coach of the Santa Clara women's soccer team, beat Florida State, and he joins Christian Labors and me after this message. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984. Living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves, our goal at Soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade, the studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. We're talking to not one, but two national championship coaches, Chris Grassy, and I call him Dr. Jerry Smith, over 35 years at Santa Clara, 500 wins, and guess what? Another national championship for the Broncos as they knock off Florida State. And we'll start with that, Jerry, just hearing national champions again at Santa Clara. How's that sound? Yeah, you're never going to get old of that for sure. And, you know, we it's been 20 years since we won the last national championship. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just just such a great ring in my ear. And I'm just so real, so proud of the players on our team and and so thankful for the staff at Santa Clara to provide us this opportunity for sure. I'm going to turn it over to Christian Lavers, the CEO and president. He's very thankful for one of your players. I can tell you that, Coach. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you can't leave that hanging, Dean. I got to explain that my wife, Haley, who, who coached in the NWSL, coached with Bethesda, done a lot in soccer. Now she's, now she's a mom of three, but she played for Jerry at Santa Clara back when. And I can't tell you how many different people come up and tell me what a player she was. Uh, Haley was an amazing player and and maybe you know I've had so many great players and great students of the game I'm not sure I've had a better student of the game than Haley and uh, I connected with Haley from the get-go and the recruiting of her because of her passion for the game and because she's a student of the game and and to be fair that's what's allowed Santa Clara to be successful uh, trying to recruit those kids who are genuinely students of the game and Haley was uh, and Haley was a fantastic player for us a fantastic person and um, as I said to you earlier you overachieved in the marriage department with <laughs> Haley that's for sure well I'll pass that along to her and I know that'll mean a lot to her before we jump into uh, the college cup specifically maybe we'll keep going on this theme but it's it's striking when you look at the alumni network at Santa Clara I mean, it's got to be up there with as big as any as any soccer school in the country in terms of the achievements and the prominence of the alumni. What do you credit that to? 
Yeah, again, I think we, we um, you know, I've been there a long time, so I think the continuity helps. And, you know, when I came into Santa Clara in 1987, you know, we we had never gone to the tournament. And uh, in fact, there we became in 1989, the first women's team in any sport from Santa Clara University to go to the NCAA tournament. And we ended up going to the final four. And, uh, you know, I think, I think uh, Brandy, you know, choosing to come to Santa Clara, transferring to come to Santa Clara University had a lot to do with it. You know, when you get someone like Brandy Chastain to uh, come to your school and play for your school, you know, that that uh, turns a lot of heads and uh, piques a lot of interest in other players. And um, but the team that we had back in the 89 and 90, we went to the final four both those years and 90. We were the number one team in the country. And, um, you know, I think, you know, when you're successful, as long as you handle your recruiting properly, um, you're going to continue to have success, you know, success breeds success. And so other great players followed. And uh, here we are, you know, 35 years later, still, uh, you know, today, if I'm honest, I spent my day on the phone recruiting and trying to recruit the next generation of Allie Wagner's and Leslie Osborne's and Daniel Slayton's and Julie Ertz and Haley Siegel's and, you know, kids that we have on our team right now, Kelsey Turnbow, Alex Luetta, these guys are really good players. And, uh, yeah, we've developed a little niche for ourselves in recruiting. And, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're successful because of the talented kids that come to our program, for sure. Elaborate on that. I'm going to jump in there, Christian. I mean, they are big-time personalities, right? They're leaders. They're broadcasters. I mean, they are on television everywhere you look, not just in the stands cheering you on, but they're big-time TV stars. I've been asked about that a few times. I, I would, you know, and I don't know how to really handle that and take responsibility for it. It's just, the, I think the thing that I try to do is, and this is the truth, and I just try to recruit badass women. That's what I try to do. I want, I want somebody who's, they just, they're badass. They just want to be the best. They think they're the best. They think they can be the best. And uh, they're opinionated and they're stubborn. And they're all those players, including Brandy, including Alec. God, I had so many fights with those guys. They are so stubborn. They are so strong-willed. But that is what also makes them great. You know, when you listen to Allie Wagner on television, she just tells you what she thinks and she doesn't hesitate about it. If you're good, she'll say you're good. If you're bad, she'll say you suck. So that's just the way she is. Brandy's the same way. And I'm really proud that we have an environment where the young women in our program uh, have license to develop to their greatest potential. And they don't take a backseat to men or they don't take a backseat to other sports. Um, and, and they're badass and I'm happy that we recruit those Julie Ertz. God, I would not tangle with Julie Ertz ever. That kid will eat you up. I'm telling you, she ate me up. We had, we had, I had meetings with Julie and I walked away and I think, I think I just got my butt chewed out by Julie, you know, so these they're tough and I love them for that. And that's why they helped us win games because they are tough and they are opinionated and they are stubborn and, uh, they're also very, very good and very talented. If we shift now into the College Cup, you had two very different games. Yeah. Uh, a g game against Carolina where you guys were so dangerous and s created so many chances and, and looked very much, very much in control for extended periods of that game. And then a Florida State game that was much more cagey 
they may have had the ball for chunks, not necessarily always in the most dangerous areas, but very much back and forth. So when you look back and it's, it's always fun when you can look back from the position of winning, but when yeah. you look back at those, how, how do you compare those two games and what stood out to you in those two games about your team? Yeah, Christian, that's such a great question. Those games were wildly different. And uh, we've had some good runs against Carolina. Our numbers against Carolina are pretty good. And, and we knew that they're going to come at us and that it would be an open game. We knew that we'd create chances against Carolina because they, they, they go forward so quickly and with so many numbers, we knew we would have chances going at them. And uh, we also, you know, I have to give Anton a lot of credit. You know, I want to take a moment to do that because he lost some just amazing players from his fall season and to put his team together like he did with so many young players was really amazing. But so many of those young players played at the back of their team. And when you're playing against Carolina, a lot of coaches will figure out how do we stop them? We've actually never done that. And we've won six out of the last eight against Carolina, four out of the last five in the tournament and our last three college cup matchups. And a big part of that is we're going to go at you. We hope that we're good defensively, but we want to make sure we create our chances where we can score two or more goals. And that was our game plan. And it really was a good game plan this year, particularly because their back line were, were mostly freshmen or all freshmen. And we wanted to put them under a little bit of pressure. And we did. And thankfully, that worked out well for us. But the Florida State game was just polar opposite. And I got to share something with your audience right now. We, we just got out coached in the Florida State game. We just we 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 when we prepare for for teams we try to figure out what they're doing and then we try to figure out if they'll do anything differently because they're playing us than they have done. And when we looked at Florida state, we said undefeated ACC champs, number one seed, uh, they're not changing for us. And uh, we got that wrong. We totally got it wrong. And uh, we stood in front of our team with tremendous confidence preparing for the Florida state game and said, we know exactly what they'll do. And they didn't do any of that. And so our players are on the field in the first half. I'm sure thinking like, what the heck coaches told us they were sure. And they're, you know, now they got a sweeper, they got two markers, everything we planned for was out the window. And we had to just, I mean, we were flying by the seat of our pants in the first half. And I give a lot of credit to our players. We try to create an environment like all good soccer coaches where it's a player's game and they got to solve problems on their own. And uh, I think we've done a good job with that. But as coaches, you're also supposed to give them some assistance in trying to figure that thing out. And we did nothing to help our team in the first half. And uh, fortunately, we got out of the game uh, halftime 0-0. And I gave a halftime interview with ESPN where I said those very things. We, we got caught off guard and, and uh, we got to figure this out. And then I proceeded to give about the worst halftime talk to my team that I've ever given to a team. Uh, you know, we couldn't figure out how to, how to play against them. We, we got in front of the team and we said, Hey, here's plan B. Let's go with plan B. They walked out of the locker room with what did he just say? I don't understand what he's talking about. I could see that on their face. I stayed in the locker room, tried to X and O the thing as best I could ran back out there, talked to my associate co coach. He said, yeah, let's do that. It's like 30 seconds before the kickoff of the second half. And he scrambles into the huddle and says, no, we're doing this three, six, one with a box. And, and, the, and now he walks away and the players look twice as confused as they did 10 minutes ago. And so it just was a mess. And, uh, you know, I've thought about a hundred times how I would handle it. I've learned from that. 
Uh, I know what I will do differently in that situation, um, but I just have to give our players a ton of credit. Now, having said that, as bad as we were in our coaching, if you would have told me before the game, you're going to play the great Florida State team, which is almost like playing a pro team with all the international players they have on their team, and they were only going to get eight total shots and only two of those would go on goal, I guarantee I'd have taken that before the game in a heartbeat. And we did. Yeah, we conceded possession. Uh, they weren't always in dangerous places, as you indicated. Having said that, we're built to create chances, and we were not creating chances. And uh, when we went down 1-0, we have a saying in our team, let's, let's, let's not die a slow death. So if we lose 2 or 3-0, that's better than dying a slow death 1-0. We can't die a slow death, so let's go. And our kids pushed forward, and we created some momentum. Not for long. I, I mean, I think it was about 15 minutes of we, we got a little bit on top of the game, but it caused some turnovers and caused our fan support uh, to kind of get behind us. And, uh, you know, one bad pass at the back of their team and uh, Turnbow grabbed it and cool, calm, composed, clinical finish from her, as, as she's known to do, uh, got us into overtime and eventually penalty kicks and, uh, I'll do it differently next time for sure. Um, but really thankful for the players on my team and uh, their ability to solve the Florida State puzzle for sure. So you referenced this in recruiting and then in, in just in that story, you have players that obviously were able to deal with a little bit of uncertainty without losing their confidence, playing a game where they're maybe not used to not having the ball as much as they did and didn't lose any confidence when they did have it. I assume you look for that when you're recruiting and you would look for those types of players, the attacking players, the players that want to win. What do you do beyond that in your culture to develop that sort of competitive fire? It's not just the attacking player because uh, your center back has an edge. Alex Luetta. She has an edge. And, yeah, she's uh, edgy. That in, that in that game. But the whole team has an edge, which I say in a real positive way. How do you develop that and create that? Well, first of all, as you pointed out, we look for it. You know, we, we want edgy kids. And I, you know, we, we listed a number of edgy kids earlier in this, uh, in this conversation. Alex has edge. And when I watched, the last time I watched Alex play as a youth player was at uh, an ECNL tournament in, uh, in Arizona. And it took me about 10 minutes. I walked over to the other coaches and I go, I got to have that kid. She just, she just, I don't know. It was like a slide tackle that blew up like three people. And I was like, I got to have that kid on my team. She's edgy. Uh, Julie Ertz is edgy. Uh, believe it or not, as little as she is, Allie Wagner is edgy. I had April Heinrichs call me from national team camp and she goes, Hey, get a hold of your girl, Leslie Osborne. I go, what do you mean? Get a hold of my girl. She's like, she's going to injure the whole women's national team. I go, well, <laughs> that kid's edgy, man. She's, she's going to get into a tackle and she's not going to leave any doubt. And uh, so we look for that in our training. We encourage it in our training, or we look for it in our recruiting. We encourage in our training. We certainly highlight it on film. You got to have an edge, you know. You got to have an edge. You're, you're trying to compete. You're, you're going to play against the competitive cauldron of North Carolina, Nance and Dorrance, and you don't have edge. They're going to eat you for breakfast, man. That's just, it's not even going to be fun. So, I think one of the reasons that we've had good success against Carolina and just its success in general is we look for those edgy kids. We encourage the edginess. I, I remember a story. I had a kid, Anna Krause, 
helped us win the 01 championship. She got a yellow card like seven, seven games into the season. She goes, Hey coach, so sorry. I go, sorry about what? She goes, yeah, that late tackle yellow card. I go, yeah, about time you got a yellow card. Get in the game, man. Let's go. And uh, I mean, I'm not talking about let's hurt somebody, but you got to compete. You got to have some edge. And again, uh, in women's soccer, you're going to eventually go through Carolina. And if you don't have edge in that game, you, you don't have a chance. He certainly took care of Carolina. We'll be back with more Jerry Smith, the head coach of the Santa Clara Broncos, the reigning national champs of NCAA. ECNL Boys is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world, the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed, and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. We're here with Jerry Smith, the head coach of the Santa Clara Broncos, the national champions of Division I women's soccer. And Jerry, I appreciate you saying North Carolina had to go through a lot because they lost some players and Florida State had to go through a couple of things. Are you kidding me? Santa Clara was on a lockdown of all kinds of lockdown. I mean, you barely got any games in, let alone to get to the NCAA tournament. Can you walk us through what you went through just to even get into the NCAA tournament? Because you guys weren't even allowed to step outside there for a while. Yeah, that's uh, thank you for bringing that up. And again, it's why I'm so proud of our group, our staff and our players we were the first county in America to shelter at home. And that was, of course, back in March of 2020. And our county sheltered at home, the first county in America. And we were the last county in America to allow sports to be played in our county. For example, our basketball team had a season, but they played no games in Santa Clara County. They played in Santa Cruz, where the Golden State Warriors, uh, you know, a minor league team plays. And so, and, uh, you know, we, we, we had no spring season in 2020. We had no fall season in 2020. Uh, I've been waiting to get a knee replacement. I decided to have it in late December because it didn't look like we were going to even have a winter or spring season. So I got my knee replaced late January after the rest of the country is four or five weeks into their practices. We got the thumbs up that we could, we could start practicing in February. Our first practice was February 10th and uh, we lost our whole non-conference schedule um, we had to postpone our first conference game because it was seven days after our, the first day of training and sports med said, you're going to injure the whole team. They're so unfit. And, uh, so we only played seven games and, uh, then we had to wait a month, uh, before our first NCAA playoff game. Uh, and, you know, and, and then of course you go out to North Carolina and you're in the bubble. And actually on the day that we, 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 we sat in our film room watching the selection show, we learned that we were one of the seeded teams. We were the 11 seed. And um, that day we go out, we have a tradition of going out and have a little light kick around on that day just for fun. And we, we lost our, uh, our, our senior four-year starter captain uh, center back uh, in that light practice with a ruptured Achilles. And so now we have to then 
try to have, you know, without any games of preparation, we're going to have to play in the second round of the NCAA tournament. So when we played in the second round, our, our one of our center backs, the one next to Alex Luetta, her name is Eden White. That was her first start all year. Our first start all year was in that game. And then we brought in another player to, to play holding mid, and that was her first start all year, Makoto Nizu from Japan. So we were a makeshift team. Uh, we got through the Ohio State game, and then we had to play Arkansas. And uh, that's, you know, it's a very different style of soccer. Um, and uh, so we had to, we, we actually played a, a formation that we hadn't played all year because it was Arkansas and it was a different animal and it worked. Uh, Clemson was a kind of, a regular soccer game, but they're so good. That game could have gone either way. Uh, and then as we already talked about the Tar Heels and, and uh, Florida State, but it was, it was, it's certainly the most bizarre 14 months I've ever been through. I will tell you this, in October, Brandy came home and I was sitting in the backyard. I love, I'm a homebody and I love my backyard. And I was sitting there pretty much bawling, I think is what how yeah, you describe it. And Brandy came up to me and she said, what are you doing? And I was like, I pride myself on handling tough situations. This thing has just buried me. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know if we should be practicing or not practicing. This is, I just, I thought I could handle COVID and I can't and I'm miserable. I, should I retire from coaching? I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, that was October. And to be sitting here in May as national champions, it's just, it's, it's, it's surreal. It's just unbelievable. I guarantee you, if you handed someone a movie script a year and a half ago with all this stuff on there, they had have thrown in the garbage for being unbelievable. And here at our, we, we lived it and we won. So incredible. It's certainly the school to, uh, beyond soccer movies i think you guys have a history of that with yeah that's true so speaking of that because you're talking about dealing with the pressures and the stresses of covid and how players deal with that how coaches and staff deal with that you've also done a lot i mean you've been there for so long and you've started your leadership academy can you talk a little bit about what that does and why you started that and what you hope from that let me preface what i'm going to say by i love coaching and I plan to coach for uh, many more years as the head coach of the women's soccer team at Santa Clara University. I just, I really love it. And I have just as much energy as I did 30 years ago. So uh, having said that, uh, about seven years ago at Santa Clara University, we started uh, what's called the Jerry Smith Coaching for Life Academy. And uh, our mission is to make the teaching of life skills the number one priority in youth sports. And by life skills, we're just talking about, you know, teamwork and communication and conflict resolution and time management and all these skills that are certainly transferable to other aspects of your life outside of sport. And, uh, you know, we, we work with we work with young players, but, but for me, I work mostly with coaches. I really enjoy working with coaches. And the theory there is if we work with coaches, then it'll trickle down to a bunch of players. And I don't have nearly enough time for um, <clears throat> the Coaching for Life Academy um, because I'm coaching, uh, but I'm so glad that we've started it and we're inching our way to where we want to be. And when I do retire from coaching or Santa Clara tells me I'm done coaching, either one, um, you know, I will be looking forward to doing the Coaching for Life full time. And it's so wonderful to have a long-term deal with Santa Clara University. And uh, whether I'm coaching or not, I'm gonna be at the university, I'm gonna be impacting uh, young people and coaches. 
and that's what I enjoy doing. I, you know, all, all good coaches consider themselves educators and I'm an educator and I love teaching and I love teaching coaches and young people. And when I'm done teaching and coaching soccer, we'll be teaching, uh, you know, leadership and, and, and the development of life skills for young people. And uh, I'm, I just, I really, really am going to dive into that, um, you know, full time when I'm done coaching and, and really looking forward to it. That's great. Different question now with respect to coaching, following up on something you said there, you mentioned you still have the same amount of energy as you did years ago. And I think it's actually an Anson Dorrance in one of his first books talking about how older coaches don't lose knowledge of the game, but they lose energy and the willingness maybe to, to confront and challenge issues that they would have addressed earlier. And I think when you look at especially youth coaching, there is a high degree of burnout of yeah. that just they just put everything into it and then they just get chewed up and spit out. So you're talking about how you've maintained energy, you know, now for 30 plus years. And you also have a staff that's been with you for a very long time. So can you talk a little bit about how you manage your staff, how, how you've been able to keep the same people with you for so long and how you've kept coaching fresh for you so that you haven't hit that level of burnout that so many do? Yeah, thank you. That's, you know, so when we, when we won the championship in 01, my assistant, Rich Manning, became the head coach at the University of Utah. And I was so happy for him. And, and that was, I don't know, the third or fourth assistant coach that I had lost um, to a head coaching job. And so after the 01 championship, you know, in a renegotiation of my contract, I really didn't ask for a lot in my contract, but I wanted an associate head coach. That was really important to me that I could get one person that I could kind of more or less rely on. And obviously if their dream job comes up and they leave, great but I wouldn't have to replace an assistant coach every three or four years. That's just too hard to have the continuity that you need. And so the university gave us an associate head coach and I brought in Greg Murphy, who is our associate head coach. He was the head coach at Loyola Marymount university, a, a school in our conference. And so having coached against him, I was clear that he was a great coach. I, if I have a chance to coach against you, then I have a good feel of how you coach. And Murph's just an amazing coach. And, he worked with uh, Tim Schultz. Tim Schultz and Murph took our U-20s to the World Cup. And uh, so he's good enough to coach for the U.S. national team. And he was good enough to be a great coach against us in our conference. And uh, I approached him and got him. Uh, my other assistant, uh, Curtis McAllister, has been with me 20 years. And he's super loyal and super hardworking. And uh, he's good in a lot of different areas. But he was a professional goalkeeper. And to have somebody on our staff... Uh, in a full-time position that works with the goalkeepers was really important to me. Um, so many times the goalkeepers just aren't getting as much of the training that they need. And uh, Curtis does a great job for us in that area. And that continuity has been huge for us. Now, you could say, well, it's been 20 years since you won the championship, uh, but we've had a lot of great teams. And if I'm honest, I probably had 15 teams that are as good as the team I have right now. And that's not disrespectful to the team I have now that's just how hard it is to win I mean you know Anson they won every year for a long time now they haven't won since 2012 that's a long time for Carolina it's hard to win and um, but we've had the continuity and I think the consistency from the coaching staff has really helped us uh, a tremendous amount and I think that you know we have systems in place 
We have five core values that we live by. We have a leadership training program that I run from within my team. Um, you know, we we're looking for these very mature, hardworking students of the game that we enjoy working with. So there's not a lot of drama and there's not a lot of highs and lows. Um, and if I'm honest, I, I don't get that excited about winning and I don't worry that much about losing. For me, I get emotional when I talk about the players on my team or the alums in my program. That I'll get choked up about. That I won't be able to get through on. But winning a game, losing a game, you just don't have as much control as you want. And you got to let that go if you want to do it for a long period of time. And I was doing the press conference after the championship. And in fact, that's one of the questions I got like, hey, coach, you don't seem that excited about winning. And I said, honestly, when we won the championship in 01, I was in bed by 830 that night and the next morning woke up and started doing lineups for the next season and just move on to the next thing. Uh, but if you want to sit down and have me talk about the players on my team and how wonderful they are, and how awesome they are, and, um, are the alums in our program, though, those are things that are really hard for me to get through, quite honestly. So, again, reflecting, I mean, there's not very many people that we can talk to that have been involved in the game for as long as you have. Then you're still only, you know, 24. So, you know, <laughs> amazing. But when you when you look at the changes, I mean, not, not only has college soccer changed, but when we started the league, the ECNL, we wanted to make changes in the youth game. And so obviously you've you've managed through that as the recruiting has changed. And that's kind of a boring topic. But what have you seen change with respect to the players in terms of the quality, the numbers, things that they're maybe better at? How have you seen the incoming players that you're getting at age 18 change over over the last 10 years? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that, um, you know, just the depth of the of, of, of the player pool is just increased so much. There's just so many great players out there. I think for a school like Santa Clara to win a national championship um, proves that you, there are plenty of great players that can help you win a championship out there. And um, so I think that it's a really deep pool, first of all. Uh, second of all, I just think there's so much more soccer on particularly women's soccer on television now. And, uh, you know, I think our players are thankfully doing a better job of watching the game at a high level, whether the, the NWSL, you know, obviously they're just getting going on a new season, but when you watch the NWSL teams like mid season or end of the year, they can play. Those teams are good and they're fun to watch. You know, we out here, we see the Portland thorns a lot and that team is just, that team can play. And so I think our players are motivated by that. They're inspired by that. Obviously, they're motivated, inspired by our women's national team. We were able, with Santa Clara University, to take our team to France in 2019 and uh, be there live for the World, Women's World Cup games and watch, you know, USA, France play each other. And, you know, I think that it's just so inspiring. But I think the quality of the player and the depth of the player coming out of youth soccer right now is, is, is clearly higher. And I think in the past where as a college recruiter, there were, you know, you kind of had your, you know, your top 50 and then your top 20. And now when we're starting to look at, like right now, we're starting to look at the 2023s and we're going to soon be kind of actively recruiting the 2023s. We have a super long list. It's a massive list, you know, and I, I can't wait, 
you know, for June 1st to get up past here so we can get out of this dead period and get back out to recruiting and, 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 and watching these kids play and talking to the coaches about them. And because there's so many great players out there that you really got to bust your butt in the recruiting uh, to kind of whittle it down to those players that fit best for your program. I'm really pleased with uh, the development of, of the youth player in our country uh, and really the women's game worldwide. I mean, if you look what they're doing in France and England, this is great for us. The salaries that they're paying to players in, in England and France and what they're doing with their youth systems out there and uh, how we're trying to emulate some of that here. It's great to see, and it's great to be able to get in front of my college players and tell them, if you want to play soccer beyond college, you can do that and you can make a living at it. You're not going to be a millionaire, but you're going to be able to make a living playing soccer. And uh, we haven't always been able to say that to our players. Well, we really appreciate you being on here. No matter how much time there is between championships, when you're counting championships plural, then you can't complain at all. I think the depth of the player pool has also made them harder to win in the last 10 years because everybody's been able to find players that can make life difficult for everybody. And I was really impressed with the, the quality of player you guys had uh, and the way they attacked both individually and, and as a group. So congrats on the win. Enjoy the win. However little you want to enjoy it, but enjoy it a little bit more. And uh, I, know, I know Dean's heart is heavy when Carolina goes out, but uh, I'm sure I'll have a few nice things to close this with. Well, and I want Christian, thank you very much for that. And Dean, thank you as well. And, and I want to, I just want to say again, how impressed I was with Anson and what he was able to do with those young players. And the reason I talk about North Carolina a lot is because they are the standard. They got 21 championships. The next highest is two. That's all you got to know. And so I'm really proud of what we've been able to do against Carolina but we're still looking up by a long way to what they do and what Anson does. And we have great respect for Carolina. And I, we have great respect for what Mark Kerkorian is doing at Florida State. That team has been a, like a pro team for at least five years now. They could easily have, you know, three or four championships in this last four years, including this year. But thank you for having me on. And thank you to both of you for your kind words. I appreciate that. And we'll end with this because it's interesting because I do have a son at North Carolina, but my wife's best friend has a daughter at Santa Clara living in Chapel Hill. And I'm telling you, you would have thought that they just won the World Cup in Santa Clara. So, I mean, all it takes is just one championship like that to change somebody's life. And you change that young woman's life out there in Santa Clara watching every game. She didn't know a soccer ball from a tennis ball before she got out to Santa Clara, Jerry. And now she's all about the Broncos and the women's soccer team and wants to go to the game. So that's something to be said about that as well, I think. Uh, recruiting new fans. I love it. Go Broncos. Go Broncos. Thank you so much for being on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. And thank you to Jason Cutney, spending time with Chris Grassy. Of course, Christian Labors, the president and CEO, joining me to talk with Jerry Smith. I want to thank all the great people at the ECNL, Doug Bracken and Jen Winnego and Andrea Wheeler and Jacob Bourne and Diana. All of them are just fantastic. I also want to thank our great producer, Colin Thrash. For each and every one of them, I'm Dean Linke. We'll see you in two weeks for another edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. 
And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.